ಪರಮೇಮೂರ್ತಿಮ ಭಜಾಮಸ್ಥಾಪಕಾಯಧರ್ಮಸ್ವರೂಪಿಣೆ ಅವತಾರವರಿಷ್ಟಾಯಕ್ತಿಮಕೃಷ್ಣೇಸ್ಥಿಹಿಯಸರ್ವಿದ್ಯಾಂಸ್ವರೂಪಾಂಸಾರ
Oh, well, it's about to get crazier because craziness is mother's favorite thing. <laughs> I hope she's a little kinder this time. She's always kind. It's not crazy. It's just exciting. <laughs> the world of samsara. But I'm good to, ha- good to have you back, dear. Welcome, welcome. And so is Jane. Jane's back also. So I'm just so excited that everyone is here. Just people I haven't seen in such a long time who have been moving and going. It's like, welcome back. I'm so happy. But yeah, so... See, the problem is the moment I go to gallery mode and start like seeing people's faces, I'm lost. There's no way I can give the lecture because everyone's so beautiful. Oh, by the way, there's Amita and Madhu. And look at Ma Elokeshi Hasya Kareshwari Swashana Vasindikali, recently installed and yet alive from time immemorial. So beautiful. Ma, 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 ma. We were just there. So it's so much, it feels very poignant to be over here and seeing Ma from across the screen. I feel like still there. Anyway, thank you for hosting us, dear. So um, where were we? Yes, it's controversial because the fact that God should have a feminine principle to qualify God is already really controversial and not widely accepted by many different spiritual traditions. So of course, there's forms of Hinduism, um, Judaism, forms of Buddhism, forms of Christianity that are of course not friendly to the idea of Shakti or the feminine principle. Certainly, that's wonderful also. But in the more tantric forms of Hinduism, it's Shakti that's stressed, actually. So it's not so much Shiva as Shiva's Shakti. Shiva's Icha Shakti, Jnana Shakti, Kriya Shakti. Shiva's manifestation as the world. That's what's more important, actually, I think, for Shaktas. So that same idea is also there in Judaism. You find a stress on Sophia, the feminine principle of the unspeakable tetragrammaton. So who then is Sophia, this unending, unlimited, Einsof hour. There's that also. Then, of course, in Christianity, there is emphasis on the Holy Ghost, which is, of course, the energy of the Father manifest fully as the Christ. So Christ is a manifestation of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is kind of like, in a trika sense, para para, where the Father is para and Christ is apara, meaning Christ is the holy, imminent version of that transcendent divine. But that's mediated through the power of the Holy Ghost. And if you look at that trinity, as we were arguing in two lectures, two lectures prior to this, It's just your basic dynamic of a family, the basic family structure. There's father, there's son, and fill in the blanks. What's the third thing that goes in here? I mean, I know this is a bit heteronormative, but I don't mean to like make a biological gender point here. Just kind of on a philosophical level, you think mother, just naturally, okay, father, son, mother. Okay, so then who the Holy Ghost would be then is this Mother Mary. And since Christ is born of the Holy Ghost, Mother Mary and the Holy Ghost already have a lot in common. And last week, last time we met, the last lecture of our year was the comparison between Mother Mary and Mother Kali. What do they have in common? Kali and Holy Mother Mary. And prior to that, we had a discussion on Tantric Christianity, the principles of Tantra as expressed by the Christian tradition and the Bhairavatwa or the Bhairava nature of Jesus Christ, who is the renunciate par excellence. So, so we've already been having these discussions. Now it's quite clear then that in this trinity, there's room for a discussion of a Shakta Christianity. What is the Holy Ghost? And if that's mother, if that's the feminine force, then in what sense is it Mother Mary? And in what sense is it Mary of Magdalena? Isn't it a little striking that they both have the same name? That Christ's mother and Christ's foremost disciple have the same name? Obviously, it was a common Jewish name at the time in the Levant. So it doesn't, it's not that striking, but I think it's still kind of important that this Mary, this character called Mary, plays this dual role. I mean, she's also the, the sister of Martha, who are relatives of Lazarus, and there's another Mary also. But in this particular case, it's striking to me at least that Mary should be both Christ's mother and Christ's, I don't want to yet say partner in case I alienate any audiences, they're going to freak out, that might come in the course of this lecture, but Christ's consort. I, oh, even that's kind of controversial. <laughs> Sorry, Christ's Shakti. 
And for those who know the implications of Shakti, it's like, okay, even that's controversial. But at least Christ's most foremost, most important disciple, foremost of all disciples. Like she is to him probably what Sister Nivedita is to Swami Vivekananda, which is what Sharada Devi is to Ramakrishna, which is what Sita is to Rama, which is what Radha is to Krishna, which is what Ananda is to Buddha, which is what Nityananda is to Chaitanya. You see where I'm going with this? So my claim here today in today's lecture is that we have a lot to say about Mary of Magdalena, but to say it will of course be controversial and much tact and nuance is required. So we'll go slowly. I think this will require two lectures. But I think I'll save the second lecture about Mary Magdalena's historicity for Christmas time at the end of this year. So I, if, unless there's a different bhava then, we'll talk about Mary Magdalena then. So we'll have some time to meditate on her. But today, I, I know people are like, no, I want to have the whole series now. And maybe, maybe that will happen. Like maybe when we get to next week, we'll be like, we just, we're not done talking about this. So you might want to continue discussing Mary of Magdalena next week and all throughout the year. Just so you know, gang, I never talk about anything but. There's only one thing I like to talk about here. It's Shakti. Whether I'm calling it Sadada Devi or Maria Magdalena makes no difference. You're never going to hear anything, I think, in this space except ma, ma, ma. So don't worry. <laughs> it's not like next week we're going to discuss, like, I don't know, Abraham Lincoln's historicity in American politics. And Don't worry, don't worry. The discussions are going to be about ma. <laughs> and even if we talked about Abraham Lincoln, we're talking about ma. For she alone exists. Anyway, I digress. The point is this discussion is controversial because not every tradition accepts the feminine aspect of the divine, much less that feminine aspect embodied as a person who is the, the, the central aid, yes, of the avatar of the age. You know, the fact that there are more than one avatars is also hotly contested. I just want you to know, as a disclaimer, before we enter into this un somewhat uncharted territory, there's a lot of nuance and a lot of subtlety and a lot of this historicity is contested. So take everything I say on a historical level and a, on a cultural level with a, with a heaping grain of salt. Not a heaping grain, that sounds like a paradox. With a heap of salt, okay? Because there's a lot of ambiguity in this topic and a lot of controversy and a lot of nuance. The first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is part of this nuance is exacerbated a little bit because in the 6th century, we know um, Pope Gregory started this, let's say, rumor of Mary of Magdalena being a prostitute or a sex worker, which is wonderful. There's nothing about, wrong about that. But the thing is, that changes, I think, to a large extent, our understanding of Mary Magdalena. So now we see her as like, perhaps this fallen woman, redeemed, perhaps. That's one sense, there's one framing. And she's sometimes conflated with the character in that famous scene of the Christ preventing the stoning. You know, there's a woman, she's an adulteress and she's about to be stoned by this mob. And the Christ stands in front of her, fully embodied as the protective mother of the universe. He stands in front of her and he says, let he who has not sinned cast the first stone. And because everyone is imperfect, nobody can cast judgment who themselves are not deserving of that same justice, that same judgment. Nobody cast a stone and that woman was saved. It's treatment that we sometimes fail to see in modern congregations where they're willing to cast stones at anybody or any, anybody that doesn't agree with them. But like that was the Christ's original message of forgiveness. We saw in that scene, his love for quote unquote, the outcast woman, the adulteress or the, the sex worker, or the prostitute. He's often depicted as hanging out with prostitutes or tax collectors. So this is his radical acceptance of facets of society that at that time were seen as like controversial and out there. That's his Bhairava nature. So Mary of Magdalena is sometimes like lumped in with all of this. Like, oh, she's one of the prostitutes or tax collectors. She's like this, this, this fallen woman, you know, and he redeemed her or something like that. But I, I don't know. I feel like that does an injustice a little bit to the complexity and nuance of the character of Mary Magdalena. To just call her this redeemed fallen woman or to think of her as um, something that society rejects that the Christ accepts, 
I don't think even scratches the surface of what she was and what she was to him. That's the first thing to correct, that this isn't always the case. It hasn't always been the case that Marion of Magdalena was seen as a prostitute or, or as a sex worker. She, in fact, I think it was only until the, after the 6th century AD that this became a thing. And this, I think, if you watch movies like Passion of Christ or The Last Temptation of Christ, this is the depiction that we often find her in. Okay, that's the first thing. The next thing is that she hasn't really been given much representation at all in the Christian communities, except by kind of like fringe Gnostic communities or some in, like communities entirely dedicated to Mary of Magdalena. Those exist, certainly. But they're more like Christian scientists or faith healers or, you know, they're more to be found in New Age bookstores with names like Alexandria or something like that. There's actually a bookstore in Pasadena where I do meet some of these communities. And they're wonderful communities, but they're not really, they don't, I think, consider themselves Christians. And the Christians certainly don't consider them Christians. So what I mean to say is that within the Christian tradition, popular mainstream Christianity, she's quite underrepresented. It wasn't until 2016 that she was canonized. And she was canonized in 2016. I mean, what is that? Like 2016 years after the advent of the Christ and after her initial like appearance, like 2016 years after all of this, she's canonized as the apostle of the apostles, which I think that's really important too. And I want to explore exactly what that means, apostle of the apostles. So that's, having said that, I also want to say a little bit about why this discussion is good to have today. So Ma Sarada Devi, the consort and spiritual Shakti of Sri Ramakrishna was born on December 22nd. But because we use a Vedic calendar, that date will change every year. So this year is January 3rd, which happens to be tomorrow. I mean, it's tomorrow in India. It'll be January 2nd for us tomorrow, but it'll be January 3rd in India. So on January 3rd, we're all of us celebrating Ma Sarada Devi's birthday. And since she's, she's the spiritual concept of Sri Ramakrishna, the Shakti of Sri Ramakrishna, to talk about Mary of Magdalena is really to talk about her. And I think that's part of the reason why I want to do this lecture. Another reason why I want to do this lecture is because Madhu Devi, Amrita, and I all recently watched a movie you know, we all sat together, Lalita and, and Richard G and Vijaya, we all sat and we watched a very wonderful movie that I like very much. It's called Mary of Magdalene. Or I think it's called Mary Magdalena. Is it? I think it's called Mary of Magdalene. I forget. Either it's called Mary of Magdalene or it's called Mary of Magdalena. It's um, Joaquin Phoenix playing a very convincing Jesus and Rooney Mara playing the central character, Mary of Magdalena. And so we had seen that movie recently. It's my second time seeing it, but it touched me both times. And it really, in that movie... Things that are so important to me in Christianity are emphasized. And so it's fresh in my mind. I thought I would make a few references to that movie in light of the discussion that we're going to have today. So these are all the reasons why we want to talk. But also, we've just been spending time Christmas season, December. We've been spending a lot of time discussing Tantra Christianity, comparing Mother Mary and Mother Kali. It's finally time now to start talking about Mary Magdalene. That's why we're... Yeah, I know. <laughs> so that's why it's so exciting. We'll talk about Mary of Magdalene. Before I do that, though, again, like I said, we'll have another lecture probably on her historicity, things that are maybe more specific to her when, I, when I've had more time to study the Karen Armstrong book and do a little bit more research just so I can be a bit more responsible with the information. But what I want to do today, apart from historicity and the cultural connotations of Mary Magdalena, I want to approach it from a philosophical point of view, which is familiar ground for me. So I just want to talk about like what she is philosophically on, in terms of principle, because once we understand the principle, we can go beyond the person. See, Ramakrishna, actually not that important. It's what Ramakrishna thought. Taught. What he thought and what he taught. <laughs> Sorry, I can't pronounce my T sometimes. But what he taught. It's what Ramakrishna taught that matters to me. It's what the Christ taught. It's what the Buddha taught. Once we understand those principles, those philosophical foundational ideas, then they can be applied across the board to any Shakti, whether it be Sita or Radha, whether it even be a male-bodied Shakti, like Nityananda of Chaitanya, or like... Ananda of Buddha, 
See, once you understand the principles, we can broadly apply them to a variety of particulars. Let's start with the principles. I want to explain what Shakti is first. That's the beginning of the lecture. So preamble, done. Let's start the lecture now properly. Let's talk about Shakti. What exactly is Shakti? Once we understand what Shakti is, then we can better understand what Sita is to Rama, what Radha is to Krishna, what um, Holy Mother Sarada Devi is to Ramakrishna. And in the context of today's discussion, most importantly, what Mary of Magdalena is to the Christ. What is Shakti? I want to give you three interpretations of Shakti, and they're going to evolve as we continue. In many ways, friends, since this is the first satsang of the year, the first lecture that we're having in 2024, by the way, Happy New Year, everyone. Happy Kalpatru Day. If there's little time at the end of the lecture, I'd like to talk a little bit about Kalpatru Day in the context of our tradition and why this day is so sacred. But just to start us off for tonight's discussion, this is actually a very foundational discussion because a lot of what we're going to talk about today can be review for many of us, but it shouldn't be seen as review. We should listen to this stuff as if we're hearing it for the first time. Because honestly, as I like to stress, this material has the power to permanently and completely liberate a person forever from the throes of suffering, from the weeping and gnashing of teeth, as the New Testament so beautifully says. So all that fear and suffering and horror of life, it only comes from one fundamental problem, duality. The problem of seeing yourself as a separate self, of identifying with this body-mind-personality complex, which you have been conditioned all your life, nay, over several lives, innumerable lives, to consider yourself as. And once that's cut at the root, the entire tree of samsara falls down. Duality is the problem. At the core of it, to see man as man and woman as woman, and to see a distinction between the two, or to see that as opposed to this, and to see a distinction between that and this, between high and low, that fundamental duality is the root and cause of all evils in life, all suffering in life. And even that's wonderful too, that's part of the play. But tonight's lecture as such will strike at the root. It's a lecture about the very fundamental issues in spiritual life. And it's possible that by the end of this discussion, many of us will be permanently free because you are that. You are that. Because it's true. Once you see what you are, you won't have to practice to attain it. You will just have to practice to integrate it. And that's, I think, the beauty of spiritual life. You don't have to get anything. You don't have to become anything. You just have to recognize what you are and then work hard to live according to that in every moment of every single day of your life. That's it. From this point on, your life will not be to become enlightened. In fact, you should see God. By the end of this lecture, I promise you, you should see God. And if you don't, either I've made a horrible mistake and we should spend an hour in the Q&A hashing it out until you do see God. But not only should you see God, but the path ahead should be clear as to how you should act in accordance to your insight. Because it's, 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 not, um, it's not an exaggeration to say that this is perhaps the deepest material. And that's why I feel so excited to start the year off with it. So let's start. What is Shakti? So the first instance of Shakti, the first conceptualization of Shakti, perhaps, is most formally and systematically articulated by the Sankins. Now, of course, this Sankhyan idea of Shakti will later develop into our modern understanding of the Divine Mother as, as we know it. But in the Sankhyan time, Shakti was called Prakriti. And as we know, Prakriti is the primordial creatrix out of which this entire universe evolves and into which it involves. So there's this primordial soup, if you will, this primordial energy or materiality and this matter-energy matrix is in, in a certain sense, formless. And in another sense, eternal. And in another sense, infinite. So this formless, eternal, infinite prakriti is perhaps the first time we start discussing shakti in the context of Indian spirituality. Now, of course, uh, in, in South Asia, there's tantric texts that maybe predate Sankhya. 
we don't need to talk about that now, but I just mean in terms of an articulated systematic philosophy, Sankhya might have been the first popular school of philosophy to discuss Shakti. Now notice they're calling it Prakriti. So the idea is as follows. There's two aspects of your experience. There is the objective aspect of your experience, that, that which you can see, hear, smell, taste, touch, that which you can experience in terms of thought, emotion, all of that. This is called the object. These objects are, for the most part, inert. And then there is the second part of reality called the subject. The subject is conscious. It's this that they call the purusha. And to this purusha, this self, this subject, this experiencing subject, the knower, it's to this that everything is presented. So this basic dichotomy inheres in each and every one of your experiences. If I am to look at a cup, two aspects are present in this experience. Richard G, namaste, Prabhu. Happy New Year. Namaste. If I am to look at the cup, I see the cup and I see Richard and I see Madhu and I see Amrita Devi. I see them. They are being presented to me, to me, the seer. Now, one thing I'm sure of is that I, the seer, am quite distinct from that which I am seeing. So notice, Sankhya makes a very obvious point. It's not saying anything new. It's just pointing out something that you know to be true. What is the line? Oh my God, I'm blanking on the line. Luke, I am your father. You know it to be true. Search the force, Luke. You know it to be true. I forget what comes before you know it to be true. But that's basically what Sankhya is saying. You know, like, look at your experience and you know this to be true already. It's not a big deal. It's not, it's not like, it's a no-brainer actually. That you, the seer, the witness, the experiencer, you are distinct, quite a thing apart from that you are witnessing, seeing, and experiencing. And you already live like this. When you move about the world, you naturally assume that those things are out there and I'm in here. You naturally assume that Richard G, that Madhu Devi, that this Yeti microphone, this lecture brought to you by, I'm kidding, this microphone, this guitar, you automatically assume that they are not you, that they're different from you. They might be yours. They might have some special meaning for you, but they're certainly not you. And yes, you can externalize yourself to them such that if they were damaged, you'd be upset. But think of all these things that you don't claim as yours. Just these things that exist in the world when you're walking down the street one day, you look at cars passing by or trees or people coming and going, strangers. They don't appear to be you and you don't identify with them as such. So what Samkhya would say then is if you look at this basic dichotomy, you have, yeah, search your feelings. That's, that's what I thought, right? Search your feelings. You know it to be true. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Joel. So yes, search, and this would be like, investigate your experience. You know it to be true. You, the seer, are quite a thing apart from that which you are seeing. So now, having pointed out, and this is key, having pointed out this basic dyadic structure of experience, this basic fundamental fact of your experience, Sankhya then goes on to categorize and count and label the scene. So Sankhya says, what can we say about the scene? In other words, what can we say about the world around us? They're able to say this. The world around us physically is composed of five elements, five basic elements. They are earth, prithivi, water, up, um, fire, tejas or agni, wind, vayu, and finally akasha, space. So in this body, there's the water element expressed as blood and saliva and hormonal fluid and what have you. There's the earth element, which is expressed as bone and muscle and all the dense substances of the body, the dhatus. But there's the fire element, the digestive fire or the fire in the blood. Blood transports heat. The liver is generating so much heat all the time. And the fire in the stomach that acid fire is digesting food and allowing the blood to assimilate that. So there's fire. There's wind. 
the air that moves through the body. And of course, wind here means prana. So it's not just breath. It's also all the other movements and directionalities of energy in the body. And finally, there's space. The spaciousness inside the bones, around the marrow, the spaciousness between joints. Like space is an important part of the body. And we know that earth, most of it is composed of space anyway. If you look at an atom, most of it is empty space. So these five elements, earth, water, fire, wind, space, the bhutas, the mahabhutas, not bhutas as in ghost, but mahabhutas as in elements, they are all together the basic building blocks of our physical realities. The physical reality is so many compounds of these primordial materials. And of course, this is an early form of what today would be an atom theory or a string theory or something like that. Many of the ancients in India and China saw the elements as the basic building blocks of physical reality. So the Sankin said, okay, five of those. But there are also five subtle elements, the stuff of dreams, if you will. So when you're dreaming, you have dream water, dream earth, dream fire, dream wind. There's a dream body. So certainly there must be some kind of like psychic matter out of which psychic materials are constructed. So for instance, this would be vibes. And there are five distinct vibes. There's earth vibe and water vibe and fire vibe, if you will. But these are unseen yet perfectly tangible. It's like why a haunted house feels eerie or why a church feels holy. It has to do with the tan matra. So there are five of these. So the Sankins very quickly say, well, there are five physical elements. There are five subtle elements. And how will you perceive these elements? You'll perceive them through your 10 organs. Your First of all, your five organs of action, which you use to transact with the world, your feet, your hands, your... Um, organs of evacuation, your organs of reproduction, you know, like all of that, eyes, the, the sorry, mouth, sorry. So yeah, these, these are organs of action, feet, hands, evacuation, reproduction, mouth for speech. So these are things that you do, active organs, the karmendriyas. And then there are the gyanendriyas, which you use to experience the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the skin, what have you. These are five. So altogether, you have five physical elements, five subtle elements, you have five organs of action, you have five organs of perception. Put these all together and you have 24 things in the seen objective world. Then there's also this interior world of mind. And the mind is further divided into three parts. There is the buddhi, the discerning intellect, which is able to tell one thing apart from another, which is able to assign meaning and reason, and even imagine there's that higher mind, if you will, the buddhi. Then there is the manas, the basic kind of mind stuff out of which thoughts emerge or emotions emerge or even sensations are processed. And there's also, of course, the ahankara, the basic sense of egoity, the sense that I am here and all of this is happening to me. That's part of the mind too. So if we break the mind down in this way, you have three principles or three things, if you will. Put this all together, you have 23 things. And where do these 23 things come from if not from Prakriti? Out of Prakriti, they evolve. In Prakriti, they have their being, and into Prakriti, they dissolve. So notice this. The first idea is that Prakriti is the creator, the maintainer, and the destroyer of all that you can experience. She is the ground of all experience because she provides not only the experienceable things, such as subtle and physical elements, but she also provides the instruments through which you experience these things. So the five organs of action, the five organs of perception, and the mind. All of these together are considered instruments. So think of it this way. There are 13 things that are instrumental and 10 things that are objective. Five subtle elements, five gross elements. They are experienced. How are they experienced? They're experienced through the instruments of the 13 others, the three parts of the mind and the 10 organs of both action and perception. So this already is a beautiful idea that this body endowed with organs and this mind endowed with faculties are nothing but instruments. You know, they're just, they're tools through which I experience the world, but they remain in the realm of Prakriti. Now notice everything in Prakriti is changing. 
Not only does it come into existence, it also goes out of existence. That's one of the stunning things about Prakriti. Things come, things go. And even when they're there, they're constantly undergoing changes. Think of this body. It emerged seemingly from nothingness, from the nothingness of the womb, from the void. It comes into being, springs into life. But then it goes through a series of transformations. Baby body becomes child body, becomes adolescent body. It becomes sick. You know, that sphinx, yes, what walks on four legs and then two legs and then three legs. So even the number of legs you're using changes. You know that sphinx there from, yeah. So what's the riddle? The solution is man. Man is the person who changes. So th these changes happen even during the existence and finally they dissolve. So not only does Prakriti create, maintain and destroy, she's also inherently active. She's inherently dynamic, you know? She, 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 she's full of energy so to speak, because it takes energy to move and act and change and create and destroy. So already all the activity is attributed to Prakriti. Now, from whom does a child come if not the mother? Who could ever be considered creative in this universe if not the mother? Even the greatest poet, you know, take a William Blake or a Keats or, you know, for you Americans, Whitman's or what have you. All of these, however creative you think they are, well, they were created by a mother, weren't they? So their creativity is contingent upon the mother's creativity. The creativity of the womb is primordial to any other kind of human creativity. Building structures of architecture, writing poems, writing music, all that creativity is contingent upon the primordial creativity of nature. And because that's first observed in the womb, in the mother, it's only natural for Prakriti then to be assigned the divine feminine, if you will. And this is a gendered argument. It's, I think, more of a biological argument. It's like, okay, well, women, the divine feminine is really just a divinization or a spiritualization of what is a rather earthly and physical reality that it's mother from whom all of this appears. It's through mother that I have it. If, if not for my mother, I would not be experiencing things. Similarly, if not for Prakriti with her endowment of her various instruments, and even with her endowment of a world to be experienced, I wouldn't be here or having this experience, you see. Do you see how it maps on the idea of mother, the idea of the divine feminine onto Prakriti? But here's the catch. I am conscious and I'm experiencing this world of Prakriti. Prakriti, according to the Sankhans, is not conscious. Because consciousness, by, by, by definition, consciousness is like this sense of immediacy, this first person experience that I'm having. I can't experience myself as a rock, says Sankhya. I mean, the rock appears to me, but can I appear to the rock? <laughs> can I see me from the point of view of a rock? Not really. Or... Um, do I feel myself to be what I see? No, I feel myself to be me. And what I see affects me, but I still feel like me. You know, it's the idea of, of me-ness, of I-ness, of knowerhood, if you will, of witnessing. That is what they're choosing to call consciousness. See, the mind is not conscious, according to this scheme. The Sunken's definition of consciousness is not at all like, I think, our current notions of consciousness. It's not the mind. It's not the intellect. It's not thoughts. It's not emotions. All of those things are considered inert, jara. Uh, object to this one consciousness, which is the seer and the witness that stands behind it all. Okay, now we have a profound idea. You are that. What are you really? Are you this body? No, you're experiencing this body. Are you the mind? No, you're experiencing the mind. Are you even your personality? No, whatever your personality may be, good or bad, you are not it. Just notice this now, right here, right now, it's immediate and obvious. I am the witness, the seer. And what do I see if not my mind, my body, my world? Why do I even call it mine? It's here today, gone tomorrow. In what sense is it mine? Is it mine just because I experienced it? 
No, no, no. I, I can smell roses. They don't make it, doesn't make it my roses. Experiencing something alone does not make it mine. Did I create it? No. Uh, was it created out of materials that I own? No. Will I be able to keep it after it's due date? No. Nature will come to reclaim it. When I'm sick, no matter how good my vegan whole foods diet was, when I get sick, can I say I don't want to be sick and it'll go away? Well, some people argue yes. But no, most of us, you know, even the kind of manifestation people have to come up time and time again with the realities of the body because the body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to nature. And yet we appropriate it. We say it's mine. But in what sense is it yours? So the claim here is that Prakriti is this homogenous field of matter energy, dynamic and active and creative. And she's generating bodies with instruments. She's generating a world to experience through those instruments. And all of that's happening over there. And in a sense, I'm over here, the witness, experiencing mind, body, world. And this dyadic structure, this duality, the moment we understand it, we're immediately free. So notice how the Christ had such grace when he was being crucified. Now, probably because he understands that you can kill the body, but you cannot kill him. It's only a person who understands, you know, no harm, no foul, right? I think for the Christ, no harm, no foul. He's able to look into the centurion's eye and say to him, "Forgive, I forgive you. Or smile at him or something. He's able to give a sermon while he's on the crucifix. And he's able to pray, sing psalms even. Forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. The only reason he could be so forgiving, so compassionate, is presumably because he wasn't really suffering that situation. And that's what we argue. According to Sankhya, what the Christ knew was this, that he was not the body, that he was not the mind, that he was not even his idea of himself. He's not the personality. He is that witness, that spirit, that formless kingdom of heaven, which was beyond all suffering. In the Mary of Magdalena movie, in the first scene that we see the Christ lecturing, he's talking to a beleaguered and oppressed Jewish people who are upset about Roman tyranny. And, you know, he says to them, which unfortunately in the movie, we understand many of the people around him misunderstood. He says to them, can your faith be taken hostage? You know, he's saying, probably, can your spirit be harmed? Can what you really are inside, can that be harmed? Can that be taken hostage? Yes, they can destroy your cities. Yes, they can kill the body. Yes, they could... Um, tyrannize the mind. But what does that have to do with you? And the Christ would say, he who shall, who shall lose his life shall find it. And who, he who shall find his life shall lose it. In other words, if you think that you are the body, you are the mind, you've lost your real life. And as Paul would say later, the kingdom of heaven is within. But what is that kingdom? The joy and peace and beatitude of realizing that you're quite beyond all harm. For you're not the kind of thing that can be harmed. You're not a body, you're not a mind, you're not a personality. Let those come and go. You are the eternal witness. So notice, in this dyadic structure, you have what is a primordial masculine principle, Purusha, which is formless, infinite, and eternal. And you have what is a primordial feminine principle, Prakriti, which is eternal, formless, and infinite. So you have two infinities here, and they're given now, in Sanskrit, gendered nouns. So Prakriti is a gender noun and Purusha is a gender noun. So Purusha, pure spirit, consciousness, formless and passive. That you can call Shiva, arguably. And that Shiva is the male principle. And Prakriti, which is active and dynamic, creative and even destructive and protective. That energetic, powerful, dynamic Prakriti is given a feminine noun, Prakriti. And that can be called divine mother or Shakti. Okay, so all of that to say, these two principles have already been established in the Sankhya sense. Now, moving on. There's a problem here, though, and that is the following. The, 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 the idea that there are two infinities is very problematic. Also, by the way, if we stop the lecture right now, it actually would be enough for joy, for peace, for freedom. Because now you know, ah, I'm not the body. What harm can it do? This great joy of, like, the joy of the birds that care not what they sow or, or, or where they, you know, what they will eat or where they will stay. 
you know, the Lord looks after them. Prakriti manages everything. Should, see, if your life falls apart, just wait and watch. The same forces that took it apart will bring it back together. If you just sit and watch, you'll see that Prakriti is running the show here. Everything is happening by her grace. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. And things are brought back together, the center is reestablished. Prakriti is doing all of this. And I have this illusion of doership. I think I'm fixing the body. Or I think I'm doing this. Or I think I'm do- But really, the body can do that. The mind can do that. What I'm saying is very subtle. Let the body continue to eat and sleep and take medicine when it's sick. Let the mind continue to work and to think and to analyze and to produce. Let the mind make music, why not? Let the hands play guitar, why not? But what does that have to do with you? You, the silent presence within, the witness that stands quite apart from these experiences. This is already really radically freeing. The Buddha, the Christ, Ramakrishna, all of them in their lives demonstrated this tremendous jnana. And by the way, once you know this to be true, which hopefully can be shown clearly, and of course, if it's not clear, you must ask questions. And that's actually how we do this. This jnana yoga, it's, it's really has to do with a lot of inquiry. And that inquiry has to do with asking questions and clarifying those things that aren't immediately obvious to you. But it should be at least, ideally, immediately obvious to you. And if it's not, we'll talk in the Q&A. But it should be immediately and directly available to you that you are the witness, not the witness. You are the seer, not the seen. Because the body is seen, because the mind is seen, because the personality is seen, you are not those things. As Swami Srivananda would say, thou art divine. Live up to it. Meaning, no more complaining, no more whining, no more fear, no more desire. You know? Like, there's no craving anymore, so to speak, because I am not that which needs to be fulfilled. There's no fear anymore because I'm not that which needs to be protected. Life happens in this simple, effortless way, and inwardly there is profound peace, profound sweetness. Right? This is the goal of yoga. Chitta vritti nirodaha tad drashtu swarupe avastanam according to the yoga sutra once you attain the highest state in meditation this becomes immediately available the, the clarity that i'm not the body i'm not the mind and from that point onwards when you live the rest of your life it will be from the point of view of purusha watching everything like a kaleidoscope of colors like a movie if you will that's the goal of yoga it's the goal of samkhya and the christ certainly had it buddha certainly had it um Ramakrishna, without a doubt, this knowledge of Sankhya, this knowledge that I'm not the body. By the way, Sankhya is easy to study. It's, you know what Hendrix once said? He said, Jimi Hendrix, he said, blues is easy to play, but hard to feel. It's very difficult to play authentic blues. Richard G plays authentic blues. But you know, I feel like, like you, can, you can learn pentatonic scales and like riff and you can, you can be a lightning fast guitar player, but it's one thing to know the scales. It's quite another thing to play the blues. Similarly, it's quite one thing to talk Sankhya or know Sankhya. It's another thing to live it. And you always know when you're living Sankhya, when you've become fearless and desireless, absolutely calm, absolutely quiescent. If you have the power to witness and watch and stand apart from what you are watching, you know you have attained, so to speak, Sankhya. But moving on, there's a deep problem here philosophically. How can there be two infinities? Isn't that weird? If one thing is infinite and another thing is infinite, they naturally then limit each other. Because the second thing's infinitude is a clear constraint on the infinitude of the first thing. And in this simple sense, if X is not Y, then X is constrained by Y, of, by virtue of it never being able to become Y. So if X and Y are truly different, if Prakriti and Purusha are truly different, then they can't be infinite in any sense. So what then the Vedantist in the Advaita camp realizes is that we have to resolve them. We have to figure out which one exists. Now, the materialist will say Purusha doesn't exist. Prakriti alone exists. Matter and energy alone exist. There's no such thing as consciousness. And there are philosophers like, like Dennett who, who argue this. And I think it's kind of a bold move. It's a non-duality of matter, if you will. But it's incredibly 
tenuous and I think untenable because the only thing you can be sure of, as Descartes pointed out so long ago, is that you exist. What you are, who you are, nobody knows. But that you are cannot be disputed because even to doubt it is to affirm its existence. So we can't then say Prakriti exists, Purusha doesn't because Purusha is the only indubitable part of your existence. So you have to say Purusha alone exists. How then will you justify Prakriti? What will you make of all of this? What will you make of the world of objects, of senses, of mind? The Sankhyan then gets developed into the Advaita Vedantic framework. And this is as follows. The thing that you see in front of you is an illusion. It's not really there. These names and forms are so many shadows. There's so many dreams, as it were. And they don't exist eternally as, as things in and of themselves. Any more than your dreams have eternal existence as things in and of themselves. When you wake up, the dream disappears. Similarly, when you realize, hey, Justin G, namaste. When you wake up and you realize that this world is not a world, it's actually just an appearance in consciousness, its plurality disappears, so to speak. So we've talked about this, of course, at length. And if anybody wants to inquire further in the Q&A, we can take it up. In what sense is this world a dream? In what sense are name and form illusory? Well, like These are conversations we can have. But what Advaita Vedanta does is it looks at this world of Prakriti and it says it does not exist. Prakriti has no existence apart from Purusha. So Purusha, they end up calling Brahman, pure spirit. And Prakriti then, they end up calling Maya. It both exists and it doesn't exist. It exists because clearly I'm perceiving something, but because I'm misperceiving, it therefore ultimately doesn't exist. It's like when you see a snake instead of a rope in the dusk, in the pre-dawn light, as it were, it's your mistake that you saw a snake when really there was a rope there. Similarly, it's my mistake to see Prakriti when in truth there is only Purusha. There's only a rope. I'm seeing it as a snake. So that ignorance, that sense in which I live in a world of plurality, a world of multiplicity, that's called Maya. So Prakriti is now Maya and Maya is called ignorance and it's actually not a thing. It doesn't really exist. So we've dissolved Prakriti, so to speak. All we have left is Purusha. Okay? And in such a model, everything is equally Purusha. Everything you see is Purusha through and through. It's like we were saying in the previous class. If Pots are made of clay. It doesn't matter if one pot looks different from another pot. Though they might differ in name and form and function, ultimately, essentially, it's all clay. Clay and clay alone. So similarly, this whole world, like waves being made of water or like ornaments being made of gold, like pots being made of clay, this whole world, although exhibiting a tremendous diversity, is in fact one homogenous mass of consciousness, which you are. You are this world. You are everyone. You are everything. And this is a fact. It's not something that needs to be believed. It shouldn't be believed. It should be realized. So right now, notice that you are aware and this entire world is experienced in your awareness, just like a dream is experienced within the dreamer's mind. So too is this entire world experienced within awareness. So there's no two things now. We've gone from a duality, a dyadic structure of seer and seen to a non-duality, a monadic structure whereby only the seer exists. And all of this is the seer presenting itself to itself. So remember, in the Advaitic scheme, this Prakriti is dismissed as Maya illusory. It does not enjoy an existence. But in the tantric sense, which is where we come into the Mary Magdalena conversation, in the tantric sense, no, 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 it cannot be dismissed because Brahman, remember, is inactive. Brahman doesn't become anything. Brahman doesn't create. Brahman doesn't maintain. Brahman doesn't destroy. Brahman just is. Consciousness just witnesses. It, doesn't, it just knows. It just watches. And these things cannot really be considered verbs. It, it can't create. It can't maintain. It can't destroy. It's just the basis in which those things happen. So then what accounts for the appearance of diversity? How did the rope become a snake? And this is where the Vedantist will um, stutter a little bit. They'll say, well, see, the rope wasn't really a snake. It just appeared as a snake. Who did it appear 
as a snake too. Oh, it appeared to you as a snake. Who are you? Oh, I'm Brahman. So you're saying Brahman? It, uh, Brahman made a mistake? No, no, no. Brahman doesn't make a mistake. Then who made a mistake? You made a mistake. But who are you? Oh, you're Brahman. But not when you're making a mistake. You see, there's this whole like thicket of thorny logic that happens here. Because either Brahman has Maya, which causes Brahman to experience himself as all of this, at which point he's no longer Brahman. Or Brahman doesn't have Maya, which doesn't give you an explanation for how you've experienced yourself as a limited being in a world of many things. You see the problem here? If everything is indeed Brahman, nothing exists apart from Brahman to make the mistake that this is not Brahman. So what the Tantric say then is that Brahman is endowed with Shakti. It's not Maya anymore. Yeah, it's great. But for it to be great hide and seek, there must be some veiling power. And this Avrana Shakti is called Shakti. So no longer is it Maya, it's now Shakti. So this Prakriti is no longer seen as Maya, it's seen as Shakti. But just like the Advaita Vedantist claim, this Shakti is non-different from Brahman. So Brahman and Shakti are one. And this is the next most important idea in today's lecture. Not only is Prakriti slash Maya slash Shakti infinitely creative and active, not only does she create, maintain, and destroy, not only is she dynamic and powerful, um, she's also inseparable from him. This Prakriti is inseparable from Purusha. And another way to demonstrate that is, if I wanted to show you things as two, like if I wanted to prove a duality, I'd have to show you things apart from one another. So I could show you this cup. Look, here's a cup. And I could show you this bottle cap. Here's a bottle cap. Because you can see the bottle cap without the cup, and because you can see the cup without the bottle cap, in other words, because I can show them independently of one another, I can prove that they are two distinct things. But are you able to show Prakriti independently of Purusha? Have you ever experienced a world outside of yourself, outside of your experience? Could there be such a world outside of consciousness? Obviously not. All data, however objective, however scientific, is being perceived by a subjective experiencer. In that sense, all data, even objective data, is subjective. Even so-called corroboration between so-called others, even that is subjective because even that appears within the range of your experience. Like in a dream, you could talk to other people and it feels like you're in a public space, but really you were in a private space all along. When you woke up, you realize that everyone you met in your dream wasn't you. Maybe in a dream you were a scientist and you were in a lab and you were looking through a microscope and making a very intimidating looking Excel spreadsheet or something like that. And you could think in your dream that you are collecting objective data that's independent of you, the subjective experiencer. And then you wake up to find that it was all in your head, it was all in the dream. Similarly, this is why in quantum mechanics there's these ambiguities like Copenhagen inference or things like that, because the observer has more to do with the experiment than most of us are willing to admit. It's a participatory universe, Max Planck said, not an observatory one as per Einstein. So like Heisenberg uncertainty and all these kinds of things, they, they show you that like maybe things aren't as objective as you thought. So the idea that this world exists apart from consciousness requires philosophically that you show the world apart from consciousness. You have to say, here is Prakriti without Purusha and here is Purusha without Prakriti, which you can never do. See, every time you experience the world, you always experience it within the context of Purusha, within the context of consciousness. Therefore, in Brahman is appearing all of this. You know? and, and, and as such, the, the reason why it appears, arguably, if there could be any reason whatsoever, we say is Shakti. Brahman has this Shakti, this power. So I'm speaking on a very philosophical level and we'll ground it in a moment. And this Shakti is the reason why this appears at all. Just like we talked about with Prakriti, she's creative, she's destructive, she maintains, she protects, she's the dynamic power at the world's birth and at its dissolution. It's the power of the world's sustentation. This Shakti, as we were describing 
Prakriti a moment ago is properly feminine. It's properly mother. So two things appear, but one thing in truth exists. Brahman and its Shakti. God and God's energy. Now, by the way, God wouldn't really be God without God's energy in, in, the, in the theistic sense of God. Because we look to God, God creates, God maintains, God destroys. In fact, God is someone you can pray to. God is a person you can appeal to, like Supreme Court or something. God's the ultimate judge and you appeal to God. Like all of these imply action. See, Brahman is not God in that sense. Brahman is nirguna nirvishesha. Brahman is you in the sense of pure non-dual reality. It doesn't exist, it's existence itself. It doesn't know anything, it's knowledge itself. It's not blissful, it's bliss itself. It's reality. It's more of a principle than a person. So when you pray, it's very difficult to pray to Brahman because you are that and that alone exists. So then who do you pray to? When you think of God, you're thinking of actually something active, something that creates, maintains, and destroys. So this is the third point I want to make in today's lecture. Remember, the first point is that Prakriti or Maya or Shakti, whatever you want to call her, this feminine principle is creative, is dynamic, is powerful and is active. That's the first point I wanted to make. The second point I wanted to make is that this Prakriti is inseparable from her Purusha. This Shakti is inseparable from her Brahman. That is, there cannot be two. There can only be one for reasons aforementioned. The third point I want to make is this. When you consider God in the theistic sense of somebody you pray to, somebody that creates the universe, somebody that destroys the universe, that God is actually Shakti, not Brahman. And yes, it's true. Brahman is inseparable from its Shakti. Yes, in one sense, Brahman and Shakti are one. But when we talk about God, we're actually talking, and hopefully this is clear, we're talking about the Shakti aspect of God. Do you see? So from a philosophical point of view, God in the theistic sense has to be a woman, has to be a mother, because it's the mother who creates, maintains, and destroys. It's the mother who is active and powerful. See? She's Prakriti. So God the Father, it turns out, is not a father at all, unless you're thinking of him in the Nirguna, Nirvishesha sense, which would mean being beyond both father and mother, being beyond both dualities, right? God could not be the father. I mean, like, just look at this. Philosophically, I'm not making a sectarian point here. It's not like, okay, I want to be a Shakta and tell you like, okay, God must be a mother. No, I'm not making a sectarian point. Also, hold on. Om Brahmarpanam Brahmahavir Brahmagno Brahmanahutam Brahmevatena Gandavyam Brahmakarma Samadina Haryom Tatsat Om Shanti 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 Brahman is the ritual, Brahman is the offering, Brahman is the one who offers to the fire that is Brahman. If one sees Brahman in every action, one will find Brahman. Om peace, peace, peace. Cow, cow, cow. They're, they're just gonna eat, so we had to do the meal chant. Okay, so now I've decided that, like, when you talk about God, it's not a sectarian point. It's not a sentimental point. Oh, I want God to be a mother, therefore God is... No, no, it's a philosophical point. Let's stick to the facts. If indeed, according to Sankhya, the creative power is called Prakriti, and if indeed, according to Tantric non-duality, that Prakriti is better called Shakti, as per the Advaitic argument that it cannot be different from Brahman or from God or from, from, from Purusha, then we have to accept that God in the traditional sense of the creator, preserver, destroyer, the person, God the person, is mother. Okay, so now it comes to the historicity of Christ and Mary Magdalena. Christ is a woman. Do you know, because God is not the father. God is the mother, right? And, and it, the gender doesn't matter here. Like physical bodies. By the way, I've never met a man in my life. Not, I've, no, I've not met a single man. I myself am not a man. Why not? Because everything is Prakriti. Everything is that divine feminine. You see, this is a woman. Like, this is a woman. 
that is a woman because by woman i mean prakriti the creative principle of maintenance dissolution is change as long as something is changing as long as something is moving as long as something is dynamic we understand it to be prakriti woman divine feminine you know so everything is feminine you get this idea in vaishnavism also the idea that everyone is radha everyone's embodying radha we're all prakriti and krishna is the only purusha and we're all in love with krishna and that uh, radha bhava or that mathura bhava there are no men here the Vaishnavas say, for the same reason. All of us are Prakriti. You see, from a tantric point of view, it's not about gender. This body, your societies will say, is male-bodied. And that body is female-bodied. And then on social media, you'll have a hotly contested debate about, but we're not even on that level now. We're not talking about gender. We're not talking about sex. We're not talking about your identity politics. I'm talking philosophy. And it maybe just so happens that we use these terms masculine and feminine, which are very charged in our current political zeitgeist, but I, I don't mean to go there. I want to talk about the creative active dynamic principle. So you can call that God the father if you want, but just from this point of view, from the tantric point of view, it's better to call that God the mother because of its creativity, activity, dynamism. Okay, so that God, we know that God becomes Christ. So hence Christ, not only because he has a body and mind, but because he's a manifestation of God the mother, is mother through and through. I actually, I, I have this, since we were talking about Christ last month for Christmas, all these different Christ lecture ideas have come to mind. And one lecture I want to have is called Christ the Mother. And I actually did find a Christian mystic who wrote a letter called that, Christ the Mother. So I want to read you that letter from this Christian mystic. And there's actually two. I found two Christian mystics who referred to Christ's motherhood. I want to read you both of those letters and talk about Christ in the context of his motherhood or his, his mother's heart or unconditional compassion nature. And there we can even talk about Eric Fromm, who's a psychologist, and we can use his um, kind of Jungian, oh my God, look what's happening on Madhu Devi's screen here. Do you see this? Oh, it disappeared. Do you guys see that? You, it, was like, it was like a thumb. It's like suddenly, do you, do you guys see it? Like Zoom did, yeah. It, but it was different. It was like, it wasn't like in the corner. Anyway, never mind. It was like a bubble. It was like a bubble and thumb appeared. Anyway, it's, Okay, so um, God the mother. God is the mother, has to be, because God is creative, dynamic, etc. Yeah, maybe. So God the mother manifests as Christ, who is the mother. And we'll certainly have a lecture in the future called Christ the mother. But for now, let's, let's talk about Mary Magdalena. So when this divine Shakti manifests, it manifests in three ways. So this is quite exciting. One alone exists. It appears as nature soul, Swamiji says in Song of the Sannyasin. But let's go further. It appears, and he says this also in another place, it appears as nature, soul, and avatar. Okay. See, there are many people who are not going to buy into the doctrine of the avatar. Why not? Because they don't buy into Shakti. And that's valid. So notice, those who are very Buddhistic in a classical sense, in a Theravadin sense, those who are very Advaitic in a classical, maybe Shankara sense, although I contest that, I think Shankara was a tantrika through and through, but in a Shankarite philosophical sense, they won't accept avatars. Why not? Because they don't accept Shakti to begin with. And, and as such, they don't accept nature or soul as like existing entities. And we don't accept them as existing entities either, separate from Purusha. But they are manifestations of Purusha. Their appearances may be within Purusha, but those appearances can be distinguished into at least broadly speaking, three categories. There's nature, which is everything. And within that nature, there is purusha, the individual knowers. So notice this, nature is prakriti, purusha is knower. So knower and prakriti are now both of them manifestations of shakti. That's where it gets a bit nuanced. Brahman is a bit more global than just purusha. I mean, in separate lectures, we've talked about how in Sankhya, there are many purushas, but in Advaita Vedanta, there's only just one Brahman. So Brahman is the one consciousness in which various knowers come and go. We can talk about that in the Q&A. It's a subtle and beautiful idea that only one person exists and it's you. No one else but you exists. 
but not in that solipsistic one Purusha alone sense, but in the sense that all Purushas are contained in Brahman. Anyway, so Brahman is more global than just the local idea of Purusha. But Purusha and Prakriti, nature and soul, are both manifestations and appearances in that Shakti of Brahman. And there's one other appearance, one special appearance called the Avatar. And last week I gave a lecture on the Avatar, Rama, Buddha, Krishna, Jesus, Ramakrishna, like that. And it was hotly contested, and, and as it should be. It's a very challenging and tricky idea, and we ought to be at least a little bit disturbed by it. What God can be a Look, look, Mother's screen. Look at that. Look at Mother's screen right now. Do you see that? Did you guys, you saw that? You saw it, right? Okay, good. <laughs> I knew the day would come when I would point off into the distance and be like, guys, guys, do you see? <laughs> and there would be nothing there. <laughs> It's not spiritual um, attainment. It's just insanity. Don't confuse the two. <laughs> One sometimes parades around as the other. <laughs> and in my case, it's certainly not spiritual attainment. It's more likely insanity. <laughs> okay. So we have this idea that, um, <laughs> you know, we live in a culture where if I see things that aren't there, they'll be like, wow, you must be so spiritual. No, no, no. I need help. <laughs> what does spiritual have to do? What does spirituality have to do with seeing things? <laughs> really? <laughs> it has to do with kindness and compassion and freedom and joy and peace not seeing things my guru likes the joke you want to see lights come i'll press your eyes like this and you'll see some lights whoa so spiritual <laughs> oh my god you're talking to ascended masters good 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 very, very good for you <laughs> some oxygen depravity and anybody can also anyway just playing okay so oh sorry <laughs> That's valid, by the way. Like, that's valid. Like, those visions are valid. But that's not what makes spirituality. What makes spirituality is compassion. Right? Like, so there are people of tremendous compassion and power who are spiritual heavyweights who do also have those experiences and talk about them. But I like, it's nice to poke fun every now and then. I'm all in good spirit. You know? Okay, so continuing. Um, <laughs> continuing. The idea that, like, we have this prakriti or this maya or this shakti and from this maya shakti prakriti, emerges nature, emerges soul, but this third category called avatar, that depends on your accepting of Shakti to begin with. But once you accept Shakti, you accept diversity. Diversity not in actuality, but in appearance. So there's this apparent diversity. You know, apparent. And in that diversity, lots of things exist. And one class of thing is called avatar. For more of a discussion on what that avatar is, last week's lecture will, will sort you. It's called what is the avatar? What is an avatar, I think? That was last week's lecture. So we won't go into it now. I just want to kind of get to the point. So we have all these ideas. So just note, these ideas are all there in the philosophical background. Now let's go into the particular. So hopefully you can see our strategy here. Always stick to philosophy. Okay? But as long as you have a firm grasp on the principles, on the foundational ideas, we won't get lost in the cultural maze of like names and forms and all of that. See, you are God. Thou art that. It's philosophically true. Be that. It's obvious. Your divinity is not to be believed. It's to be recognized here and now. And if anybody among you doesn't see that, if you don't immediately now see that you're not the body, see that you're not the mind, see that you're not your personality, I have to show you. And in the Q&A, we can do it. We can just wrestle, you know? And you can ask any question you want. There was once a Swami who was, he, he said this story. He was learning this stuff from a senior Swami and he was kind of shy to ask questions. And so he approached him and he's off to the side. He said like, I have a question. And that Swami says, ask away, my boy, ask away. 
better brains than yours have been asking for years and still the philosophy stands because truth needs no defense. You know, it doesn't need a conquest. I don't have to ride in your, into your city with horses and swords to convince you of the truth. It's just the truth. You see, it, does, it speaks for itself. The truth is that you are birthless, you are deathless, you cannot die. Lust, fear, greed, anger, they've got nothing on you, you know, because you are that. So that's the truth. And stick to that. Stick to the philosophy. As long as you have a firm grasp, as, and by the way, if there's a little bit of an intellectual misalignment, it can actually down the road be quite problematic. If you misunderstand, if you understand wrongly, that can sometimes be like, it's good to correct your vision before walking on a path, be clear as to where you're going. You know That's why th these discussions are very important, I think, just to be philosophically oriented. So before I talk about Mary Magdalena or anything, or, or, or Jesus or Ramakrishna, I mean, forget all of that. The main thing is the principles, the philosophy. Okay, now against the backdrop of this Purusha Prakriti, of this Brahman manifesting as nature, soul, avatar, against the backdrop of all of this, we can look at a particular case, Jesus and Mary Magdalena. So uh, earlier today at, at dinner, I was sitting across my wife and we were like talking about tonight's lecture. And she's like, what are you going to talk about? I was like, oh, I'm going to talk about Mary Magdalena. And then she looked at me and she said, you don't know anything about Mary Magdalena. <laughs> and I'm like, that's true. <laughs> I said, that's absolutely true. <laughs> but the... But we do know about Shakti. And the point is, we can understand this now in the context of Shakti. Who would Mary Magdalena be then, if not the Shakti of Christ? Christ himself is the Shakti of God. So it, it, it's, uh, what is this? Uh, so uh, Katyayani Das is saying, I heard an Adya Shanti lecture where he maintains that Christ was the, the loneliest man in history. Because one, nobody knew what he was talking about. And two, the moment the going got tough, tough, all 12 of his male disciples completely bailed on him. And he was left with two female disciples, one of whom was Mary Magdalena. The moral of the story being, if you're starting religion, make sure at least 50% of your disciples are female. <laughs> so they stick with you. Yeah, because there's something that Mary Magdalena and Mother Mary were to the Christ that his male disciples were not. This is important. Yeah, Katyayani Das, you're right. According to my um, Spotify podcast stats, our numbers are pretty good. <laughs> I think we'll be all right. We'll have a more. <laughs> so, uh, you know, Buddha, the, once in one place, he famously said, um, apparently they were debating whether or not to have female monastics, right? Like at, at the beginning, Shankara's camps and Buddha's monastic camps, they were all just men mostly and, and buddha was the first one in history to consider he was the first one in history really to establish an organized monastic community prior to that of course monasticism was a long held and long cherished ideal in india but it was like kind of freewheeling very freewheeling free dealing bob dylan-esque you just kind of wandered you just walked out of your home went into the forest and i don't know hey mr tambourine man your way to liberation you just like you're just out there you know, you were out there in many senses of the word. But there, you couldn't like, there wasn't like a place where you wear a certain kind of robe and you, you know, it wasn't, that structure wasn't established until the Buddha. So they, they were asking, you know, um, whether we should have nuns. And you know, the Buddha famously said, he said, yes, we can have nuns. But he said, in doing so, we have halved the life of, half the, halved the life of the Sangha. I can't say that. Halved the life of the Sangha. You know, Buddha famously said that. And most people understand this to be, oh no, we made a big mistake. The Sangha would have lived 800 years, but now it only lives 400 years because we brought women into it. 
But sometimes I understand that in a different way. I say, well, now what would have taken 800 years only takes 400. <laughs> you know, that's my shock that take of this. But okay, but the point I want to make is, um, <laughs> yeah, we're on two times speed. <laughs> the point I want to make here is, Christ is the manifestation of mother. But Christ and Ramakrishna and Buddha and Chaitanya, they're meant to mirror the absolute. So they're actually more absorbed in the absolute. When you notice them, they're frequently going into Samadhi. Chaitanya, it's hard to get really a lecture out of Chaitanya because every few words you'd go into Samadhi. I, perhaps besides Ramakrishna, no other case of this is known in history of a person who just couldn't get through a sentence without going into Samadhi. Over and over, Samadhi is not a small thing. It's a very high state of divine absorption. And you would constantly go into samadhi. You know, if you'd go to see Ramakrishna and you'd want to hear something, chances are you would find him just sitting there quietly, absorbed, maybe smiling a bit mysteriously and crazily at you. Because he's in his own world, you know, he's absorbed. It's, it, it's not Ramakrishna who founded the Ramakrishna mission, right? Like he had what, 16 disciples? 16 monastic disciples and, and, and some householder disciples. But mother, holy mother, innumerable innumerable disciples, like almost everyone who was initiated in the Ramakrishna mission, post the first generation, were all from the Holy Mother. Holy Mother initiated the vast bulk of the monastics, female and male, into the order. So the Ramakrishna mission is powered by Ma Sharada Shakti. When, and this is important, when Vivekananda saw a vision of Ramakrishna, once, this is interesting, he saw Ramakrishna and Ramakrishna pointed to America, telling him to go to, he didn't do it. Ramakrishna couldn't get Vivekananda to go to America. He went to Masharada and Masharada told him to go. It was Masharada who told him, my child, you were born for this purpose alone. Go. Isn't it interesting? Ramakrishna, Vivekananda's guru, appears to him and tells him to go to America to teach the Americans Advaita Vedanta or whatever it is that he was meant to bring over to America. But he doesn't go at once at the drop of the hat. He goes, he goes and asks permission from Masharada, interestingly. And it's Sarada Devi who tells him to go to America. And in fact, he would say, I felt the mother, the divine mother, which he understands to be, of course, Kali, but also Masarada, speaking through me. He said he would go into, he would often offer this account that he would go into this kind of trance and he would feel the mother speaking through him. You know, so Swamiji felt like it was Sarada alone who was speaking in America and it was his body, his breath that was the loud hailer, if you will. He was the drum and she was beating it to keep the rhythm for this new Leela. So notice, Sarada Devi was specifically and uniquely commissioned by Ramakrishna to do the work. He said, I'm leaving now. And she's like, oh my God, and she, I'm leaving this work to you. And she, she, she's, he says to her that she has to stick around. She has to stick around and do this work. And indeed she did it. The amount of Shakti that flowed from Sarada Devi. Of course, we'll talk about this next week. We'll have a special lecture on Sarada Devi next week, just about Sarada Devi, her life and teachings, of course, next week. But you'll see in next week's lecture, this is the only point I want to make today. We'll develop it next week. You'll see in next week's lecture, she is the power of the Ramakrishna Vivekananda lineage. Like the whole thing exists only because of her. It's her energy. It's her Shakti as mantra. She, how much mantra diksha she gave. She gave so many people mantras. She gave people mantras that Rakal or Swami Brahmana that you wouldn't touch. You know, like she, she really established the, 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 the tradition. So in that sense, Ramakrishna, he's God. But it's not God who establishes the mission. It's God's Shakti who establishes the mission. So it's Sarada Devi who establishes the mission. Isn't that beautiful? There's actually one scene where um, one of Ramakrishna's disciples Maybe Yogananda, I forget which one, is sitting, Yogin, sitting and meditating on the bank of the Ganga. It could be Niranjana, uh, Niranjananda, I, I forget. But somebody is sitting and meditating. And Ramakrishna comes and says, what? You're sitting here meditating? Don't you know the one on whom you are meditating is now inside making chapatis? Go and help her. 
as the seeds of what Swami later, Swami Vivekananda would later develop as this karma yoga idea. The, perhaps the loftiest spiritual idea I've ever heard in my life. The idea of worshiping God in man or as a person. You know, why close your eyes and meditate? I mean, you have to. Most of us have to. But eventually, we'll realize that that's foolish. I close my eyes. God is only in here. When I open my eyes, what is this? If not God. When I make you tea, is that not meditation? What am I doing? Is that not puja? Why should I worship God here? This image, what about that image? If I can see God there, can I not see God equally in that image? And if I can give fruits and sweets to this, and I give fruits and sweets to that? This idea, it's a lofty idea. It's not social service. It's not just humanitarian action. No, that's a lower idea, horrifically low. Quagmire of politics and corruption. No, no, no. This is a spiritual ideal. The sense that everything everywhere is divine. You know, anyway, I digress. That seed of karma yoga was there expressed. And don't you know the one on whom you are meditating is there making chapatis? But this is literally, literally the divine mother on whom he's meditating is inside making chapatis. But what is the chapati if not this world? We're seeing this world and in this world there are avatars. So in Christ Leela, there was a scene in that movie that really struck me in the Mary of Magdalena movie. Last thing I'll say and we'll close the lecture and open for some Q&A. And it was a scene where Christ is about to offer the Sermon of the Mount. Famous sermon, you know, and, and this is where he would teach everyone to pray. But during the Sermon of the Mount in that movie, he calls Mary to him and he says to her, go and be with them while I pray. Be my hands. And that struck me. I was like, oh, that's, that's it. That's what the Shakti is. Uh, Mary Magdalena establishes the Christ Dharma. She, he specifically commissioned her to do it. Like Ramakrishna commissioning Sarada Devi to establish the Ramakrishna mission, so too does Christ commission, in that movie at least, in that script, Holy Mother um, Mary to go and do that, to go and hold people's hands and pray with them and be his hands in the world, be his Shakti. So while he was praying, she was walking around, touching people, anointing them, blessing them. You know, so that's the first thing. The first thing we should say that these avatars, they seldom come alone. When Chaitanya came, he was going into Samadhi all the time. It wasn't Chaitanya who established the mission. It was Nityananda, the Tantric Nityananda, Chaitanya's right-hand guy, supposedly, but his Shakti. See, gender has nothing to do with it here. Male-bodied practitioner, Nityananda, was the Shakti of Chaitanya. With Buddha also, you had Ananda, his best friend, who really helped him establish. He was kind of his like, attendant and kept the traffic, if you will, in and out of the door like that. So you had Ananda, you had Chaitanya uh, and Nityananda. Of course, Radha Krishna, obvious. Sita Rama, obvious. Ramakrishna Sarada, obvious. So now look at Christ and Mary. In that scene, I think it captured it so beautifully. Okay, now in the end of the movie, it's so beautiful because you realize that Peter gets it wrong. Like the 12 male disciples, the reason why it was so hard for them probably to understand the crucifixion of Christ is because they all done fucked up. They messed up in the movie, at least. The movie presents this idea, and I'm inclined to believe it, that they misunderstood the Christ's very radical message. A lot of them thought it was about um, national freedom. You know, and maybe they later realized. I mean, the gospels certainly don't say this. But in that movie, at least in the beginning after Christ's crucifixion, they all thought that what the Christ was talking about was literal. And don't you see the failing of the church now is that it takes everything so literally. It thinks the Christ literally meant what he said, as if intelligent people don't sometimes speak in metaphors and parables. We know that Christ taught in parables, and yet we're so simplistic with his teachings, so under-nuanced, so literal. So is there going to be an apocalypse? I mean, come on. What, right? Is there actually going to be the end of the world? Is there actually going to be the kingdom of heaven? Is John's visions in Revelation actually going to happen? An under-nuanced and unsophisticated mind might think so. But look a little closer, as Mary of Magdalene did, and she saw that the Christ was speaking about some inner state, some subtle inner state. 
The kingdom of heaven was within. It was a psychological, if you will, if not spiritual state, not a political one. It was not a change in the outside world. It was a change in the inside world. It was a change in perception. It's almost course of miracles, E. You know? So this idea, in the movie, it said Mary got it. She might have been the only one who got it. And maybe my claim here is that that might have given her the ability to stand by the Christ in what was perhaps too harrowing for some of his other disciples. Peter amongst them, who renounces him, right? Denounces him and, and, and um, forsakes him. And of course, maybe they all later get it. Maybe Mary taught them. But as Swamiji maybe corrected some of his disciples, his brother disciples. But maybe, you know, and I'm, I'm, obviously we have to develop this idea later because I'm trying to finish on time today. I'm not, or I'm certainly not going to. But my one of my news resolutions is to be built tighter in the lectures. You know, I'm getting there. If I can, if I can end a little earlier today, I think I would have made some progress towards that goal. I don't expect it to happen overnight, but we'll get them. One day these lectures will be one hour, tight and clipped, and you know, today is not that day. No, no. So um, what I'm driving at here is, in the movie, it presents the apostles, the twelve of them, as understanding the Christ message politically and literally. But it presents Mary as having the sophistication and subtlety of seeing perhaps what he truly meant. And part of that was her ability to see him as human. There's a scene in the movie where Mary's sitting next to the Christ and she asks him, how does it feel? And he looks at her aghast and he thinks, no one's ever asked me that before. You see, the thing about an avatar is that they're not just God. They're also people. They're humans. But maybe it's given unto women who have a natural capacity for motherhood to see maybe the human side more than the God side. We see many instances in the movie where the disciples are kind of careless with the Christ's energy. They're, they're all too excited to share Christ with the world, which is wonderful and valid, but they forget to take care of him, you know? And he gives away so much shakti and he's like about to pass out and people are clamoring to get blessings from him. And it's only Mary of Magdalena, the mother's heart that she is. It's only her that can see that he might need human help. And so she goes and like takes him away from the Christ. Like, don't you see? They're hurting him. And it's, it's, it's given unto her, to, she took care of him in that sense. So too, Sarada Devi took care of Ramakrishna in that sense, as a person, but never at all in any moment forgetting that he was God. So Mary of Magdalena, the Shakti of Christ, was not only the Shakti of Christ in propagating the message, it was the Shakti that maintained the Christ, you know, which is, which is very, very interesting and very exciting. Okay, so all of that to say, this is an offering to Sarada Devi, who is to Ramakrishna what Mary of Magdalena is to the Christ. The Shakti whereby his true message was offered and understood. The Shakti whereby that true message was disseminated, spread broadcast to inspire and uplift others. And the Shakti whereby he himself was sustained. So if we understand God to be dyadic in appearance, but monadic in truth, then no avatar can come di divested of its Shakti. And Mary Magdalena is obviously then the Shakti of the Christ. So I'm sure there are some questions left. Like, for instance, I think everybody always wants to know, did they bang? Right? That's like the main thing. Like whenever we talk about Mary Magdalene, there are people who are like, no, they're householders. They must have had a sexual relationship. After all, isn't that what Tantra is about? No, it's not. Tantra is about energy. And of course, while Tantra does not, in most of its forms, reject the expressions of energy on that level, it's not about that. It's about refining and transmuting that energy into finer and finer expressions. So it's actually not that important whether or not they did and they probably didn't. And how do we know that? Because of Ramakrishna and Sarada. So if we use Ramakrishna and Sarada as a model, a historically documented contemporary model of Mary and Magdalene, uh, Mary Magdalena and Jesus, we'll see that like you can have true love actually without sexuality. Who would have thought America, you know, <laughs> like the idea is that like sexuality and physical intimacy is so interwoven 
in the way that men and women relate to one another, or women and women or men and men, or like anybody relates to one another in the sexualized society. But the idea that love, romantic love even, can exist on a higher plane than just physicality is perhaps a very difficult idea for many people. So I want to close with just like this sentiment that like you can love someone intensely and deeply and powerfully and even romantically, but not necessarily have to do it on the plane of the body. Now, it might be helpful for us in our own lives, we who are not avatars, to engage with others on that plane. It's, there's nothing wrong with that. There's no moralizing here. But it's just that in spiritual life, you come to identify less and less with the body. And here's a fact, a very difficult fact to face. The less you identify with the body, the less you will see others as bodies too. The more you identify with the spirit that you are, the formless, impersonal aspect, the more you will see that in others. Therefore, people won't be men or women to you. It's impossible to see men or women. You see bodies. And behind that body, you see mind. And behind that mind, you see Atman, the true self, which is, as Swamiji said, the sexless self. Whose father he? Whose mother? Whose child? Whose friend? He who is all one. That idea, that sexless self, if you know you are that, indeed you are, then you will see that in others too. It's unlikely to me that Mary of Magdalene and Christ would have had a physical relationship because I think that would have been redundant and unnecessary. I don't think that takes away at all from their romantic intimacy, which I think they enjoyed. But that romance is not given unto us to really understand. It's a romance of the spirit. It's, ah, what? how can you say the thrill, the, the thrill of flesh meeting flesh is wonderful. But can it ever really compare? I mean, don't say it's worse or better. I'm just, can it compare to the thrill of spirit meeting spirit? of Mary Magdalena's intellect and mind, you know, making love to Christ's intellect and mind. What is it for two intellects to commune? On that level even, on the buddhi plane already, a much more exalted intimacy is possible. What to speak of the intimacy of spirit, the intimacy of two vast silences meeting one another, you know, two oceans melting into one another on a plane that the mind cannot even grasp. The air there is too refined for human lungs to breathe. It was on that level, I think, that they were spiritually married, just as Ramakrishna and Sarada were spiritually married. So did they have physical relationships? I don't think so. But even if they did, it wouldn't matter. You know, there was a, we were all debating it after we saw the movie. There was a scene where the two of them are like lying down and they're like looking up and like they both look at each other and then it pans to the moon, which I think is that film's like wonderful ambiguity. And you're left to think about like whether or not, you know, they had a physical relationship, which is actually for many um, practitioners important. Because they have to be householders, and to be householders, they must be co-joined as husband and wife. So a lot of people do see Mary as the the literal wife of Jesus, and there are indeed some communities that maintain Mary has a child, like the Merovingian family, like you see in the Da Vinci Code or something. Like legends of descendants of the Christ, which could only have happened if they had consummated their relationship on a physical plane. Perhaps, perhaps, uh, who knows? Like I said, historicity gets complicated and these issues will certainly take up in a future lecture, the one on Mary Magdalena specifically. But before we can have that lecture, I just wanted to give you some of the foundational philosophical principles behind it all that we may better enjoy. So what's my take on whether or Mary, uh, Mary and Jesus like actually had a physical relationship? I, I, I think it's unimportant. I think we should accept that just like Sarada Devi and Ram Krishna love each other unconditionally, it's also possible for the Christ and Mary to have had that kind of relationship. But the main relationship I want to stress today is the Shakti to Shiva. It was her power by which the Christ's true message was understood and disseminated. All right. So thank you all so much. I really, really enjoyed this lecture and I, I hope that we'll have some Q&A after this. So on this wonderful first satsang of the year on Kalpatru Day, I pray that the Divine Mother the power of the universe and the power of the avatar will graciously bestow upon us all that we may come to her to ask. May we deepen our meditations. 
May we achieve deeper levels of renunciation, which can come only through deep love and absorption in God. May we have ecstasy. May we have sweetness. May we have some genuine spiritual experience. And above all, may we stand by our conviction that we are spirit through and through, not matter. Om Yatagner Dahika Shakti Ramakrishne Stithahiya Sarva Vidyam Swarupam Tam Saradam Pranamamyaham Om Shanti 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 Harihi Om Tatsat Shri Saradar Panamastu Om Peace, peace, peace. May this be an offering to Ma Sarada who is the fire, or the heat that exists in the fire of Ramakrishna, the power whereby he's able to do anything at all. May this be an offering to that embodiment of wisdom. Om, peace, peace, peace.